What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion on this uh, beautiful Thursday afternoon here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Yes, we are the Global Catholic Network, and yet we've got this show, Call to Communion, for non-Catholics. That is our target audience, those of you who are not Catholic, Maybe you've never been a Catholic. Maybe you were a Catholic years ago, stepped away for whatever reason. Uh, But you folks have questions about the Catholic faith, and we would love to answer those questions for you on today's program. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, and I know where there's a lot of you, uh, your number is one 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The best address for that ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to uh, ask a question via YouTube, Facebook, we're streaming there right now. Just put your question in the comments box. That's the best way to get to it. Uh, Jeff will see the question, he will say, Aha! then he'll send it to us here in the studio. We'll take it from there. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm doing decent. Thank you. Interesting question here from Tom. Tom says, doesn't the fate of the thief on the cross essentially dispute all Catholic teaching? He was a condemned criminal worthy of the death penalty, yet he needed no reparation. As the Catholics insist via purgatory, no good works, no confession to a priest, no Eucharist, no baptism. He simply admitted he was a sinner and believed through faith that Jesus was Lord and could save him. So again, the question, doesn't the fate of the thief of the cross essentially dispute all Catholic teaching? Yeah, I appreciate the question. Well, of course, Catholics have known about the thief on the cross for a long time. Oh, yeah. Right? And he, we don't lose any sleep over that with, with respect to Catholic doctrine, and there's all kinds of reasons. At root, the question is not whether an act of faith in Christ can save you. The question in dispute between Protestants and Catholics is, how is it that an act of faith in Christ saves you? And the Catholic position is that an act of faith in Christ saves you by virtue of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that changes your character and makes you worthy. Okay. Right. So that in, in one fell swoop, you get the forgiveness of sins and the infusion of Christ's righteousness that makes you not, not simply imputed righteous, not as if righteous, not quasi-righteous, but actually righteous. And, uh, and that's, that takes place in an instant. So, you know, the, the baby that leaves the baptismal font, the adult that leaves the baptismal font, comes out fully justified in meriting salvation. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's nothing against instantaneous sanctification in Catholicism. I would also add that, uh, and with respect to the, the necessity of water baptism, the Church has always allowed for baptism by desire, which, of course, would be applicable in this case. Yes. And, <clears throat> and this idea that the thief on the cross did no good works and did no penance. I mean, I'm wondering if you've read the story, right? Because... After his act of faith in Christ, 
what does he do with the rest of his very short life? Um, he dies the death of crucifixion, affirming the just judgment against him. Right? And the church has always taught that the death penalty imposed when willingly accepted because one deserves it, mm-hmm. is intrinsically expiatory, right? That it is the opportunity for a person to make expiation for their sins, to willingly surrender to God's providence, this particularly difficult providence in their own case. So he absolutely did penance. The, the penance of willingly accepting his death on the cross as a just judgment against him. He also made an act of humility. Uh, I'm getting what my deeds deserve, yeah. which he says publicly. Yep. Uh, he makes an act of faith. He admonishes the sinner, right? The guy next to him on mm-hmm. the other cross who mm-hmm. wasn't listening to Jesus. So he, w- he was actually quite replete with good works. But even if he hadn't have been, it still wouldn't be a threat to Catholic doctrine for the reasons that I've already articulated. Very good. And uh, Tom, thanks so much for your question. Here's one from Annie in Kansas City. When Jesus says, treat them like Gentiles and tax collectors, If speaking the truth doesn't work for you, or when involving the church in a corrective action, is this treatment akin to uh, dusting sand off sandals? Or is it the love Jesus showed when he had dinner at the tax collector's homes? Thanks, Annie. Yes, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. You said it. Took the words right out of my mouth. That's it. So there's an element of both of these, of course, right? Yeah. So so Matthew 18... uh, reflecting the words of our Lord, also clearly, surely reflects the pastoral situation in Matthew's church when he wrote the text. I mean, this is meant to inform the life of a living community of Christians that are mm-hmm. that are receiving this. And we know that the practice of excommunication and church discipline uh, existed really from, from the very beginning within the Christian community. We can see it in, say, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul gives instructions for excommunicating somebody. So, Definitely, I think excommunication is in view here, but the Church has always taught that excommunication is meant to be remedial. It's meant to be curative, right, mm-hmm. to bring the person to repentance and back into relationship with God and the Church. So, you know, there's a—because somebody's excommunicate doesn't mean that you have to, you know, go slap them with a dead fish. You can still accompany them. You can still— uh, be pastorally present to them, but you need to do so with discretion and and and, uh, and caution because the the wrong soul doing that can be led astray into sin themselves. But the right soul, like say Jesus Christ Himself, can do that without any danger to their soul. Annie, thanks for your question. Here's one from Beth Ann. I know that the saints are gathered around the altar during Mass, but I wonder if people in purgatory are also at Mass. Do the people in purgatory see what's happening with their loved ones? Yeah, I appreciate the question. So, you know, the the imagery of the saints gather on the altar is, of course, uh, accurate and beautiful, and I love that thought myself. Be, be careful with forcing the spatial metaphor too strongly, uh, okay. right? Because yeah. the saints right now are disembodied souls, so they're not actually spatially located. It's more of a kind of moral presence, a kind of a kind of uh, agreement, intentionality of the will, as, as as it were. And with that regard, you know, do the souls in purgatory are they united with the souls of the uh, uh of the church militant in the offering of the sacrifice of the mass well they certainly have the desire for god's will to be done we know that for sure because yeah. they're in the state of grace sure beth ann thanks so much for your email hey we've got open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for dr david anders 833-288-3986 for call to communion 
It's called a communion here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Do you have the EWTN app on your phone? It is fantastic. I'm, I'm using it all the time. If I'm not streaming one of our live shows, I'm listening to something on demand, checking out uh, what, you know, schedule changes, perhaps on the TV network, all sorts of things. And you can do it right now. Get it on your phone by going to EWTNapps.com. EWTNapps.com. No matter what your phone is, we've got the app just for you. All right, if you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Ava, a first-time caller in Colorado, listening on the great Catholic Radio Network. Hello, Ava. What's on your mind today? Hi. Um, I was wondering what the role the theological virtues play in justification after baptism. I've heard people refer to that, and obviously like faith working through love, but I'm wondering exactly what the Catholic view on that is. Yeah, thanks. So uh, justification brings with it both uh, the forgiveness of sins and the infusion of righteousness. And so the will is turned to God uh, through that act of regeneration, such that the person who's been regenerated in God's grace, we can say of them that they were, they were, they were just and truly righteous, and they merit eternal life in that moment. Uh, but it also comes with them, with it an infusion of all of the virtues, not only the theological, but the cardinal virtues as well, uh, that enables them to continue to persevere in the Christian life. Now, there's no guarantee of perseverance. One has to freely cooperate, but, the, but it empowers you uh, to live worthily uh, in your Christian state of life. And those come also the gifts of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge, fortitude, piety, fear of the Lord, and so forth. All that comes as part of the package in justification. Is that helpful for you, Ava? Yes. Yeah, thank you. Fantastic. Appreciate your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. A couple of lines open, 833-288-3986. Let's go to PJ now in Fort Lauderdale, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hey, PJ, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, Tom. Hi, Dr. Anders. I appreciate you taking my call. I was listening to an answer you gave just a few minutes ago uh, from, I guess, a listener who uh, was questioning you about the thief on the cross, and it brought up something that just happened to me recently. I was in somewhat of a spirited debate with a Protestant who, I guess, comes from a thread of Protestantism that firmly believes that baptism is not necessary at all for salvation. And the argument thrown into my face was, well, look at the thief on the cross. Here is a fellow who was never baptized. Well, my comeback to this Protestant was, says who? Prove it. <laughs> I, 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 see, I see Scripture is silent on it. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But they take the position that very affirmatively, he was not baptized, and that is that. Am I am I wrong for that angle of attack? Am I missing something, Dr. Anders? Um, rhetorically, I think that's a fabulous move. And whenever someone says to me on this show, well, you know, Jesus never said or Jesus never did, my response is always, well, how do you know that he never said that or he never did that? And I think it's a great rhetorical move. Now, honestly, as a, as a historian or a kind of a historian wannabe, I would I would say the odds are strongly against Dismas ever having been baptized, and and here's why I take that position. 
ancient Christianity didn't really contemplate the possibility of post-baptismal sin. That really didn't. I mean, the, the, the conviction was you're going to get baptized and radically change your life. And that, that sort of moral rigorism, an intense moral rigorism, was so widespread that in the second century, when lo and behold, Christians started sinning, yeah. Can you believe a thing like that would ever happen? Shocking. It, it created a, a real theological dilemma for the, for the infant church. What do we do with these people? And because of Christ's teaching on forgiveness and the, and the biblical precedent in, say, Paul's letters, they recognize, well, we need to give them opportunity to do penance and receive absolution. But how many times? How many times can we put up with this kind of nonsense? Because the Christian life is supposed to be a new life, a regenerate life. And a, uh, there was a split in the church between um, a, a minority party that, that said, well, we ought to be able to admit them as many times as they repent. That actually had a pretty important proponent. It was the pope who took that position. Uh, but many others, uh, and prominent Catholics at the time, took the view that you, you're one and done. You have one opportunity of repentance, and then you're, then you're toast, right? Mm. After that, we're going to kick you out. Tertullian took that view, but so did the shepherd of Hermas and Clement of Alexandria and Justin Martyr, when he describes baptism in his apology, um, you know, he just describes it as a, this is a change of life, and you were in sin, and now you're not, and you're going to march ahead and be righteous. I mean, he just this is sort of an expectation that this is going to be a sort of radical mm-hmm. uh, shift in your in your uh, in your approach here. So, you know, I I, I I don't think the church had in mind somebody getting baptized and then you know running off and being a robber and a thief and a murderer and, and dying the death of crucifixion. It just doesn't kind of fit with the mm. picture of, of the early Christian community that, that I've got. Appreciate your call, PJ. Hope that's helpful for you. Call to communion here on EWTN. We do have a couple of lines open if you have a question for Dr. David Anders, or perhaps you'd like to explain uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. Oh, okay. Here's that number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Mary is listening in Florida, also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Mary, what's on your mind today? Hello. It's so nice to be on. Thank you. Um, my question is, um, I have been in a conservative Catholic women's prayer group for many years, and we discussed different things, but the last couple years, they're kind of, some of them are very into preparing for the apocalypse, the Christian apocalypse, and, you know, the warning and the sign in the sky and the three days of darkness, and I have a little hesitation with this. Good. Um, if I... Uh-oh. We lost the call. Yeah, I, I have a lot of hesitation about that stuff, right? Yeah. So Christian apocalypticism, particularly when it's inspired by alleged prophecies of contemporary apocalyptists that claim <laughs> to have uh, some vision or revelation that says that Christ is going to come back, you know, in three and a half weeks or two and a half years, and and it, particularly when they introduce changes to the devotional and liturgical regime in, in consequence, you have to take up this spirituality or this practice or you know, go get your beeswax candles or something because the end of the world is nigh. I mean, the, the Church doesn't teach any of that stuff. It's not part of the public revelation of the Church. It's not part of the catechesis offered by the Holy Father and the bishops of the Church. It's not in the catechism. Um, it's very divisive, and, and quite frankly, it's, um, uh, you know, it, I, think it, I think it facilitates a kind of neurotic personality and approach to public life and public mm. responsibility and social justice and 
political engagement and you name it, that, that's just deeply destructive of uh, genuine spirituality. But Cardinal Ratzinger wrote a book one time called, called um, uh, What is a Christian? I think that's the title of the book, or What is Christianity? And, uh, and he said, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the Christian is the person who loves. Yes. You know, the, the, the whole end of Christian faith is not to build a, uh, a kind of paranoid, antagonistic, um, antisocial, cult-like personality that's, you know, hiding out under my kitchen table with my blessed candles. Um, it's to be a force for good in the world. And that means, and the church is very explicit about, about this, genuine social, political involvement, economic involvement in the, in the secular life of society. And this kind of apocalyptic um, uh, uh, catastrophizing seems to me to just run quite contrary to the mm. church's social vision. Sure does. Mary, thanks for calling us back. Does that answer your question? Um, from what I heard, yes, it does. And I'll go back and listen to it again. I think that was very helpful. I appreciate that. Thank you. We appreciate you. Thanks for calling us back from Florida. Call to communion here on EWTN. couple lines open here at 833 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here's an email from uh, Maria in Los Angeles who says, I have watched several anti-Catholic tirades of ex-Catholics on the internet. Former Catholics such as James G. McCarthy, Richard Bennett, I think that was a former priest, Mike Gedron, or Gendron, they all state that they want to save us Catholics from what they say are the lies of the Catholic Church. Any opinions there? You don't watch those YouTube videos. That's a great idea. I don't, I've got better things to spend my time on. There's, right. yeah. So, yeah, so anti-Catholicism, Protestant anti-Catholicism in particular, is, of course, 500 years old, having yep. dated back to the Reformation. Uh, I grew up in this kind of community that saw the church as the Antichrist and the and the the whore of Babylon and Catholicism as intrinsically ordered to damnation and Catholics are all going to hell and yada 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 right and uh, so I've, I've had my fill of that now to respond to specific charges I mean we uh, there, there are so many it's uh, seems to me kind of um, pedantic to kind of go down the list. I mean, I don't want to do their work for them. No, you know, I'm not no, going to start naming no. off their objections to Catholicism, no. but I will share this thought with you. So um, G.K. Chesterton, of course, one of the 20th century's most famous converts to Catholicism, uh, was an extraordinarily talented journalist and public commentator and, uh, and a public figure in his own day. And so he engaged in debates and lectures and conferences all over the United Kingdom and the English-speaking world. And as a secular man before he came to Catholic faith, he noticed that uh, whether he was with uh, the conservatives or the liberals, the capitalists, the communists, you know, you name it, whatever political party, whatever social class, what everybody seemed to have in common, well, they, might agree, they might disagree on every other point of policy, but they all agreed that the Catholics were bad and at fault, right? <laughs> and he, he began to come to the conclusion that, at least in the eyes of his contemporaries, that the Catholic Church could do nothing right, and in fact it was infallibly wrong. And he decided that a church that could absolutely get nothing right and was infallibly wrong was far more interesting than the other alternatives on offer. And so he began to investigate, and the church that he had determined was infallibly wrong turned out to be infallibly right. Lo and behold. Yeah. Wow, fantastic. Appreciate that, uh, Maria in Los Angeles. Thank you so much uh, for your question. Called to communion here on EWTN. This one is from Carolyn in Oregon. Thank you so much for your enlightening program, Dr. Anders. Could you comment on the hymn, In Christ Alone? I love the hymn, but I'm concerned about some of the words, such as, 
the wrath of God was satisfied. Thanks for your time, Carolyn in Oregon. Uh, yes, thank you. So that, uh, you know, I have looked at this one before. I've had this question before. So um, no, 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 no. I'm kind of zipping down this, the lyrics sure, as sure. we talk. Um, the wrath of God, wrath of God. Yes, uh, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin was laid, for on him every sin was laid, here in death of Christ I live. Yep, that is that is Calvinist atonement theology there. Right? That's Ooh. what that is. And so that's bad. That's wrong. That's not the Catholic position. Um, God, uh, God, the atonement of the death of Christ was not an act of expiation by which God's wrath against the sin imputed to Christ was turned away. That's the Calvin's view. That's not the Catholic view. And there's so many problems with that view, it's, it's hard to even begin. But let's take a shot at it. So first of all, that view uh, suggests that God was alienated, was angry with Christ, who stood in the person of a sinner. So that implicates God in being angry at himself, of course, because Jesus is the God-man. Right, so right. You know, God becomes sort of uh, schizophrenic on that, on that view, and he's angry at himself. Um, it also entails God being wrathful at an innocent person so that he can acquit the guilty. Mm-hmm. And that's what we call unjust. So it's a, it's a very debased and unworthy view of God, that, that God is a wrathful tyrant uh, whose wrath needs to be satisfied by blood sacrifice, uh, needs to be expiated by blood sacrifice, and that he's in enmity with his very own son. So it's just a, it's a barbaric view of the atonement, and it's not one that Scripture teaches. The Catholic position is very different from that. The Catholic position is that we are alienated from God because of our sin, and it, it's we who need healing, right? So we need something that will actually turn our wills back to God. And enable. See, God is kind of like, uh, by analogy, sort of like the sun, God is goodness itself and love itself, and like the light of the sun doesn't go away when the clouds come out, right? It's the clouds that obscure it, but the sun doesn't stop beaming down on planet Earth, right? Right, right. But if you can clear away the clouds, if you can push away, you know, the parasol, there's the light of the sun. It was there all along. Mm -hmm. And the love of God is like that. The being and the love and the goodness of God are always there, ever unchanging. Our, Our sinfulness obscures that. We need something to... Uh, wipe that away from our souls. Now, what happens with the death of Jesus? Christ dies not because God is angry at him, but because his contemporaries are angry at him. Mm-hmm. He dies the death of martyrdom willingly for the love of the world and out of fidelity to God, which is what we should do. If someone challenges us on fundamental principles and yeah. asks us to deny our conscience, we should not do that, right? We stick to our convictions, and yep. sometimes that leads to suffering. And when that happens, we regard that as noble. Not something execrable on our part. We think that's a noble thing, like Martin Luther King, for example, who gets assassinated. For he's he's uh, he's advocating for civil rights, which is a noble goal. And we look at him and go, "Well, he's a hero," you know, because of that. That's how that's the character of Christ here. Christ dies at the hands of unjust men, and his heroic self-sacrifice in testimony to the truth is regarded by God as meritorious. And so he rewards Christ. And through Christ, the church, members of Christ's body, with this outpouring of grace in the Holy Spirit that transforms us, wipes this blindness away from our eyes, reforms our character, enables us to turn back to God. Carolyn in Oregon, thank you so much uh, for your question. I want to put in a little plug here for uh, all of you who have been sending us emails. We really appreciate this. We like to uh, feature several emails on each of our shows, and it's just one more way to contact EWTN. Here's the address for you folks, and that is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Like I say, we try to do a couple of on each of our live programs, and then once a month or so, we'll uh, clean out the mailbag and uh, do a whole bunch of emails in the event, uh, you know, if, if, you haven't, if you haven't heard your email answered, 
Uh, hang in there with us because we'll probably get to it, if not on a live show, on one of the encores. In a moment, we're going to talk with Lydia, a first-time caller in Missouri. Also, Michael in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Several lines open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN. Stay with us. It's called the Communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. We have one line open, 833-288-3986. Hey, please pray for our friends at Siouxland Catholic Radio. They're sponsoring a big fundraising dinner on Monday evening. Their keynote speaker is... Who would that be? Oh, me. Oh, right. Yeah, me. (laughs) EWTN's Dr. David Anders. If you're listening in Sioux City, Iowa, Storm Lake, Nebraska, anywhere, please support your EWTN Catholic radio station. By the way, we'll be praying for your safe travels. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. How do you get to Sioux City? Do you, uh, where where do you fly from? Do you go to like Wichita? I'm flying into Omaha. Omaha and then over. Mm Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Very good. Here is uh, Lydia now, a first-time caller in Missouri, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hello, Lydia. What's on your mind today? Hi. Um, I heard you tell the other caller that, you know, the Christian is the one that loves. Um, Recently, uh, I lost my best friend of 20 years because he doesn't want to speak to me anymore. I think he uh, found out how Catholic I am, and um, he got really in deep with the LGBTQ community uh, after college. And I think, you know, I got married and had four kids right away. (laughs) So our lives just kind of went in opposite directions. Mm -hmm. But um, lately we've had a lot of conversations, like really heated conversations, and um, it came about that we were having a conversation about um, like Catholics and what they believe and um, about marriage. And he was like, well, what do you mean you can attend, you know, my wedding? And him and his boyfriend got really heated at me and um, basically were like, well, you don't love us. You know, you don't love us if you, and, you know, basically they were like, well, we're just going to stop talking to you because unless you can reject your faith and accept us for who we are, then you don't love us. Um, and we don't need that in our lives. And so, I don't know, I think I've just been struggling a lot with, well, how can I, how can you show um, the people in this community that's so prevalent today um, if their definition of love is completely different than what we, I as a Catholic understand it as. You know? Yeah, I really appreciate the question. It's, I couldn't think of a more timely question. This is so relevant to everybody yep. today. So let me make a, a, several observations that may not be immediately relevant to you, but I think are relevant in a general sense to this kind of issue. And um, uh, based on your description, they're probably not relevant to you. There are some Catholics that have the idea that, you know, my response to this kind of thing needs to just be rebuke and refutation. That when I'm presented with this kind of moral picture that I need to explain to them why they're wrong and bad, and that's the loving thing to do. And that doesn't sound like you at all, but uh, some people take that view. And the problem with that is that it doesn't change anyone. Nope. Right? I learned an interesting thing from the psychologist David Burns about why therapists usually fail when they're in therapy. And most Mm. therapy fails. Really? Yeah. And he said the reason why is because of the psychological um, uh, uh, process known as resistance, which is that 
you know, we w- there's a inborn tendency to kind of reject when anybody defines for us what we need to do. We, we mm. push back on that no matter what it is. And so therapists have to find a way to work around that, kind of like if you ever saw my, my big fat Greek wedding, when they have to convince the father that it's his idea, you know, <laughs> that the that the girl go get the job at the cousin's uh, travel agency. Right, you know? right, but once, right. Once he thinks it's his idea, he'll go along with it, but he's not going to accept it if it comes as somebody else's idea. And and pastorally, there's actually uh, some wisdom in that that's applicable to the Catholic Church. You know, the, the, the Pope has made a big deal in the last 10 years about what he calls pastoral accompaniment which is being present to people in a way that enables them to learn the genuine moral truth about themselves without threat, mm-hmm. right? So that mm-hmm. he's not advocating immorality or, or some kind of relativism that you just affirm people in whatever they do. And he's sometimes uh, caricatured as saying that, but it's not what he says. Go read his catechesis on, on accompaniment. What he actually advocates is being present with a person in a way that takes their life situation seriously, that's listening and open, that in a in an environment without threat, they mm. are they feel free to unburden themselves and tell you what's really going on, and that that process can aid them in the work of genuine discernment of their own situation and their and their genuine real moral needs based on the nature that God gave us. So that kind of friendship, which is uh, you know which recognizes the principle of gradualism, you know. I uh, uh, I may not be able to get this whole thing done in a day or a week or a month and a year. It may be through a relationship that's ongoing for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I can hopefully help this person come to a better assessment of their situation. That's pastoral accompaniment. And I've seen that work in my own life. People that were maybe, say, really oppositional to the Catholic Church for years over the course of relationship through years would change their mind and eventually become Catholic. But it doesn't happen just because I beat them over the head with an apologetical stick. Yeah, okay, yeah. now. None of that really seems to apply immediately here because you seem like you weren't trying to beat them over the head with a apologetical stick or, or to lecture them on uh, on uh, on their way of life, but rather they pushed back on you. It seems to me that what they want from you is not accompaniment or friendship, but capitulation. Right? That it's not it's not enough for you to affirm them or be present to them or kind to them. They want you to actually agree with their ideology. And to my way of looking at it, I mean, this is the, the major threat of, say, the whole, if you will, if you hate to use this word, but the kind of the woke regime is it's not advocating tolerance. It's advocating conversion, that society must agree with their assessment of, uh, of, of moral and historical realities. And if you think differently, then you are, by definition, a bad person. And so it's, you're confronting a kind of fundamentalism, right? Exactly the kind yeah. of intransigent attitude that the Pope is warning Catholics against. I see manifested by the hardline ideologues of, uh, of kind of the, the woke universe. And, um, you know, I don't think all you can do is uh, put the lie to the ideology by your quiet, patient, kind, affirming presence. Not, not agreeing, I'm not saying that you agree with their ideology, but you can affirm the person, be present to the person, have kind words from the person. Uh, you know, when struck on the left cheek, you can turn the, the right one also. And uh, because you're, you're confronted with a kind of angry fundamentalist puritanism mm-hmm. is what you're dealing with, except yeah. that you've, they've just shifted the, uh, you know, the, the morals and the symbols to those of this particular lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's the same kind of disposition. And it's, it's honestly, it's quite hateful. Right, because I'm yeah. like I'm not unwilling to be in relationship with you. I'm, I'm not at all, but 
like, don't you think it's unfair of you to ask me to fundamentally change my whole worldview and religious outlook as a consequence? That's not that's not diversity. That's not tolerance. That's intolerance. Is what that is. And I'm not I'm not insisting that you do that at this point, right? I'm willing yeah. to be friends with you, and have a relationship with you. Uh, and um, uh, it, recognizing that you're probably not going to change your moral situation or your lifestyle, don't ask me to. Yeah. Is that helpful for you, Lydia? Yeah, that helps. It's just, it's a frustrating situation. Of course, of course. Because, <laughs> yeah, it feels like there's nothing I can do but, like, sit around and pray again. <laughs> well, I mean, it, the, we all feel this way to a certain extent, I think, these days. Um, you know what? You can You can... You can live your life happily and raise your children Catholic and enjoy yourself and, and flourish. That's one thing you can do. You don't have to be sad and sorrowful about it all the time. And you can make overtures and send gifts that will likely be rejected. Yeah, sure could. Right. So you're not, you're, not, you're not powerless here. And really, at this point, if, if you make your affirmations and you send your gifts and your kind words and they are rejected, then the burden is on them, not on you. There you go. Lydia, thanks so much for your call. Cecilia is a first-time caller in Morganfield, Kentucky, listening on Eucharist Radio. Hey, Cecilia, what's on your mind today? Hi. Good to be with you. And I want to say, uh, Dr. Anders, uh, wow to the last question, because I know there are many of us these days that are having these same issues with family and friends, and it's uh, very difficult, so... I've got to get that written down so I can see it and hear it again. <laughs> well, Cecilia, before anyway. yeah, yeah, but well, listen, before we get to your your question, uh, you can always check out the podcast, and Charles is going to have that posted for you in about two hours here at ewtnradio.com/slash/radio. Let me say that again: ewtn.com/slash/radio. Look for the word that says podcast. What's on your mind, Cecilia? Excellent. Well, I, I had a follow-up to the, the hymn, In Christ Alone. Uh, I love the hymn, and I'm uh, almost 70 now, so I was thinking of having that hymn at my funeral. But after listening to his comments about um, Calvinistic ideas, and I'm wondering why it's still in our Catholic liturgy, and... Uh, <laughs> Should I use it at my funeral? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So wh why are <laughs> certain hymns in Catholic hymnals if they actually contradict Catholic doctrine? Well, it's because the editors of those hymnals are less than diligent about about filtering out Calvinism, to be honest with you. And, you know, mu musical styles and genres and songs, I mean, they are— powerful cultural forces that have a life of their own and i mean i mean i yeah these I, are these are know, publishers decisions right exactly and we get things in our heads and we start humming them to ourselves and we don't think about them and then we go with well, this would be a great one to, i mean i remember i was at a protestant church one time i want to emphasize this was a protestant church and uh it was a very kind of low-key protestant church and the couple of junior high girls asked the pastor if they could do the music for the communion service, mm -hmm. and he agreed without doing his due diligence, and uh -oh. we all were kind of shocked when, uh, I forget which one, but it was a Disney princess song, Ooh. right, started, and we were like, mm, that is like the most inappropriate <laughs> accompaniment yeah. to Holy Communion that I've ever seen, you know, yeah. um, and he looked quite embarrassed after the fact, Sure, um, but... Um, 
as to whether you should have it at your funeral or not. I mean, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I mean, I don't. I mean, like plenty of good. I, I, yeah, plenty of good music Absolutely. out there. And uh, Cecilia, if you're concerned in your church, you may want to talk to your music director, who uh, usually reports to the pastor uh, regarding, you know, musical selection, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Cecilia, thanks so much uh, for your call today. Don't forget to join us for Vatican Insider. That's coming up on Saturday. We air it twice for you, 5 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Uh, our uh, Vatican person there, Joan Lewis, invites Deacon Andy Orozco of the Diocese of San Bernardino back, uh, invites him back for a part two of their chat. Deacon Orozco is a Native American. He continues to discuss his work in Native American ministry. Again, Saturday morning at 5 a.m. Eastern, Saturday evening, 9.30 p.m. Eastern, only on EWTN. Let's go now to Michael. Michael is in Grand Rapids listening on Holy Family Radio. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, what's on my mind? I need some clarification on um, purgatory in heaven because uh, there's a there's a several priests on other shows that I listen to on this same channel, same station, mm -hmm. and one priest was saying that you remain in purgatory not only until all your sins are scrubbed or brushed, brushed away, but that you remain until you have formed a perfect detachment from all your relationships on earth in your earthly life, and that when you get to heaven, you are not going to know a person was your wife or your mother or this or that. But a long time ago, I think months ago, I heard you talking about purgatory in heaven. And I'm pretty sure you said that in heaven, of course, you're going to recognize your wife and that you were married and the children you had. So I'm confused as to which Okay, so we have two things we have to address here. One of them is the, the, the nature of the conscious state of those in purgatory in heaven. And the other one is, lo and behold, can you imagine that two different EWTN hosts would have different opinions on a theological topic? <laughs> oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Oh no. You know, better, better call the National Catholic Register and do yeah. an article, right? No, uh, look, Catholic theologians are allowed to have different opinions. And it is not scandalous at all if two different EWTN hosts have, have different theological opinions on something that is a matter of theological opinion and not of dogma, right? right? You're not right. going to get two different hosts. You know, you're not going to have one host who's a Trinitarian and one who's an Arian, you know? You're not going to no. have us disagreeing on matters of dogma. But it will occasionally happen that, uh, that I will take issue or someone will take issue with me about something that is a matter of theological opinion. And I could remember one time, I won't name a name, but I, I, uh, someone called me about a similar question about it, and they named the priest. Uh -huh. Right. Well, that priest called me after the show, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Well, you know, Saint Thomas says, and the Scotists think this, but the Thomists think that." And I side with the Thomists, and he said, "Well, 
I side with the Scotists. You know, we had a, <laughs> a lovely conversation, and we it was all good fun. You know, good, we, good. both these positions were theologically allowable. Okay. So it's not a dogmatic issue here. This is no dogma hangs on this. I will give you my reasons why I think I'm right. If I didn't think I was right, I wouldn't hold my point of view. But okay. look, I, it's just my opinion. Okay. So you don't have to accept it if you don't want to. Um. Uh, first of all, that we have descriptions in Scripture of of dead souls with with conscious memory of life on earth and concern for life on earth. And I'm thinking in particular Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, um, where uh, the souls under the altar are asking God, crying out, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? I mean, these are martyrs, right, who are particularly concerned with the question of justice on earth and, what, and the injustice that was done to them. That, that seems like they're pretty tied up in, in their earthly life, at least to a certain extent. Um, the whole practice of seeking the intercession of saints uh, implies a, a care and solicitude uh, by the saints and the part of the saints for what transpires on earth. Uh, the, uh, the account of the transfiguration, Matthew 17, uh, definitely involved the ability to recognize the distinct souls of Moses and Elijah, right? And that, that, that didn't just happen because, you know, the apostles had— um, you know, had their Instagram pages up and could compare. <laughs> I mean, this was a kind of infused knowledge, right? Sure. Um, and, uh, and I think it fits with the logic of the redemption, because also the, think of the resurrected body of Jesus. This was, this was rec- recognizable, very recognizable. The, the whole point of the thing, they, they knew him when they saw him, and they, Thomas could put his hands in, his, in Christ's uh, hands in Christ's side, and they, they knew him as Christ, they knew him as the Son of God, and we will be raised as Christ was raised, with the same kind of bodily continuity that Jesus had, different bodies, uh, but not but not discontinuous. There is continuity between this body and the resurrected body, which allows for recognition of character and personality and personal history. And then the whole point of the redemption is uh, not to—if there were no conscious memory of life on earth, what was the point of life on earth, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, would you, uh, would you want to have— um, you know, to, to, I don't know, win the lottery and the trophy wife and your favorite car and a fishing boat, um, and, uh, and, then, and then have absolutely no memory of it at all. I mean, it would make absolutely no sense. And right. the, the reverse is also true with the tragedies. You want to see those things transformed and redeemed. And that's what St. Paul says will happen in Romans chapter 8, that creation itself is longing, groaning with expectation until the sons of God be revealed, right? This expectation of a new heavens and a new earth where tears will be wiped away and, and uh, men and women will be justified, vindicated by God in the final judgment. So I just think it makes no sense, um, biblically, logically, theologically, to suggest that the life of heaven will be utterly discontinuous with that on earth yeah. and no memory of it. So I, I don't think that we will see our, see our spouses and know them as our spouses to, like today. We're not going to have marital intimacy of that sort in heaven because we're not going to be bearing children, but I see no reason to doubt that, like, I'll know that woman, Jill, is the woman that was my wife on earth, Yeah, and I won't say that of some other woman, right? I mean, I'll, I will, I'll love them both, but I'll love them differently, even as I love people on earth differently, of course, right? Of course. You know, I see no reason to deny that. Michael, thanks so much for your call, and uh, regarding having two different opinions, our call screener, Matt, says, uh, didn't Chesterton say Catholics agree on everything except for the things they don't? There you go. That's it. Thanks again for your call, Michael. Here is Francis now, a first-time caller from Cleveland, listening on AM 1260, The Rock. Hey, Francis, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, guys. Uh, thanks for taking my call, uh, number one. So my question is, 
I'm sure you've got asked this question, obviously, a million times, uh, Dr. Anders. Um, and I also know that a book or something to read is not, you know, a one-time fix and something that will instantly make somebody believe. But I was wondering, what are some, if you have any books or resources you would recommend uh, for somebody that is interested in the Catholic faith or was once a believer in books that would help them get on the right path to actually believing and can maybe provide uh, your best proof of the existence of God, you know, and other foundational uh, elements of Catholicism. Okay. Uh, basically, what, what are some books or resources that you would recommend that would make somebody, that would prove to somebody everything that Catholics believe? Okay. Yeah, right. So there's, there are a lot of things to cover there. I don't have one book that will get the job done and everything, but the, the, I mean, the fundamental question is the existence of God question. And, and I do have a book that I think will help address not only the existence of God, but also one's existential relationship to God uh, to create a, a model for approaching God that may be unfamiliar, but is deeply embedded in the tradition. That book is, by, is, a, is The Experience of God by David Bentley Hart. Now, David Bentley Hart is actually not Catholic. He is, he's Eastern Orthodox. And yet what he says in this book is completely consistent with the Catholic understanding of God. And the long and the short of it is uh, Hart is going to give you a far more nuanced and subtle understanding of God that, um, uh, that really will get you away from you know, the, the sort of anthropomorphic God of one's childhood. And that often it's the failure of reality to match up with that more juvenile picture of God that drives people away, but particularly in the confrontation with, with extreme suffering or gross injustice. One begins to ask questions about, well, you know, how could a loving God do this? And why aren't my prayers answered? And that sort of thing. And, and having a far more sublime and transcendent understanding of God as, say, um, the, the being that beings have, the first mm. principle, this mm. kind of thing, um, the, the the source and origin of all uh, goodness, truth, and beauty, uh, makes the idea of God, I think, a lot more, well, it's mysterious at one hand, but but, uh, but rationally swallowable, assimilatable at the other hand. Um, uh, in terms of classical theology, the works of Dionysius the Areopagite, uh, on whom David Bentley Hart draws extensively, um, is uh, sort of the origin of what's called the apophatic tradition in Catholic spirituality, the, the recognition that God is utterly mysterious and our best approach to him is often by way of negation, uh, the things that God is not like rather than the things that God is, which really escapes our, um, our rational grasp. So those are, those are two works that I think would be extremely helpful. Now, when it comes to, you know, really getting into the details of Catholic revelation and the incarnation and the sacraments and the life of the Church and so forth, um, each one of those is an apologetical topic in itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, one way into that is to see the Catholic faith lived out generously by exemplars. So the lives of the saints, honestly, uh, and diverse saints, saints from different parts of the world and different eras with different personalities, uh, to see what grace looks like in a life well-lived, um, you know, with all of the differences of personality and temperament, yet transformed by a power beyond them so that they experience this sort of transcendent form of life. That's, a, I think, a great way to, to dive back in. Francis, thank you so much for your call. Here is Marcus now in Columbus listening on the great St. Gabriel Radio. Marcus, what's on your mind today, sir? 
Uh, good afternoon, gentlemen. Thanks for taking my call. So, uh, I'm a Latin Rite Catholic myself. I've been exploring the East lately, and there's one question that I've been very interested about. This is, I think, more historical than theological. Um, but my question is, and, and let me preface, I'm not necessarily talking about in reunification after the, the schism and, you know, so-called unit churches and all these things. But I'm curious, why is it that in the expansion and development and spread of the Church, there uh, were created, you know, some nearly two dozen Eastern churches, but there's only one Western church? I haven't been able to get an answer to this, and I'm just curious as to why that is. Yeah, sure. So keep in mind that while there's one um, juridical unit to the Latin rite of the Church— there are actually, historically, several different Latin rites. So the big one is the Latin rite, the Roman rite, of course, the Roman rite, which you think of as the Latin church. But there's the Ambrosian rite, there's the Mozabaric rite, there's a Dominican rite, Carthusian rite. You know, there are some defunct rites like the Serum rite. Um, uh, you know, there are, there are different traditions of use within the Latin rite, like the Zaire use, uh, the, the Anglican use. So there, there are uh, ritual differences within, within Western Christianity, Western Catholicism even. Uh, but in terms of the juridical authority of the Pope, and this being his, he's the patriarch of this section of the, of the Catholic world, well, it's because of the papacy, of course, because yeah. the papacy is located in the West. The papacy is located in Rome. And so as, as the Catholic faith spread throughout the Western world, um, there was... Uh, uh, you know, it, it was in part due to missionary efforts of the Pope himself. And when there were traditions that predated uh, Roman missionary effort, Roman missionary expansion, there was a, a desire on the part of pe- peoples who were became aware of the scope of the papacy to be reconciled to the Church of Rome juridically and liturgically. All right, there you go. Marcus, thanks so much for your call. Could not get to Ricky in Bellevue, Nebraska, or John in Portland, Oregon. I want to invite uh, Ricky and John to please call us back tomorrow or on the day of your choice. We will put you at the head of the line. Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out that podcast by going to EWTN.com forward slash radio. On behalf of our great team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless.